Hi everyone, this is Brant Van Rokel, lead pastor of Christ City Kitsilano, and I want to let you know about a couple of things. First, if you're not a part of a local church, let me invite you to join us at 5th Avenue Cinema on Burrard Street at 9.30 a.m. We meet every Sunday morning for worship, word, and sacrament, and we'd love for you to join us there. Second, if you are new and you want to get connected, let me say welcome. Christ City Church Kitsilano is a neighborhood church committed to making missional disciples for the sake of the neighborhood. If you want to hear more about what God has called us to here in Kitsilano, then please reach out to me at brant at christlychurch.ca or you can visit christlychurch.ca slash Kitsilano. The scripture reading today is taken from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 50 to 57. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, Then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning. My name is Jonathan, and I'm one of the elders here at uh, Christ City Kitsilano, and it's my joy to be able to bring you God's Word this morning. But before we do that, uh, I need help, and so do you, and so we're going to ask in prayer uh, for help from our, our Heavenly Father. Let's pray. Father, we do need your help. We need your help to be able to see and read this text rightly and apply it to our hearts. I need your help to be able to speak the words that you have revealed here. and that I need to be able to uh, speak well in wisdom uh, to your people this morning. Would you help me to be clear? And would you also help our brothers and sisters here to receive your word uh, that This word would not just land uh, in our minds, but it would land on our hearts and it would change us. Help us to respond in faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, every 17 years, a very stunning event happens in multiple parts in North America. Millions of periodic cicadas emerge nearly all at once having lived 17 years underground as a nymph, completely hidden from sight. They shed their old skin, they transform into these beautiful winged creatures that sing, and they fly around, making their presence known to the world. And in some small way, the transformation of periodic cicadas mirrors the transformation that Paul talks about in this passage. Our mortal bodies are like the cicadas' underground existence, limited and hidden from view. But there will come a day when Christ, when through Christ we can shed our 
mortal bodies and be transformed into something beautiful, something eternal, just like the cicadas shed their old skin and become something new. We, if you recall, if you've been re- with us for a while, we are in the latter part of chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. This chapter has been Paul's detailed answer to the Corinthians' uh, apparent confusion over the question of resurrection. You might recall that some believe that there is no resurrection in the dead. Verse 12, and Paul makes the argument that if there is no resurrection, then not even Christ has been raised from the dead. And if that's the case, then our faith is in vain. In verse 35, Paul answers another question. Well, how then are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? And as we've been learning, Paul uses the analogy of seed to describe this process. Sown is this perishable, um, dishonorable, weak, natural body. And raised is the imperishable, glorious, able, spiritual body. We have real spiritual resurrected bodies. We will have real spiritual resurrected bodies. Now, in this passage today, Paul considers the question of why it all matters. As we will see, it matters for two reasons. First, it matters because our resurrected bodies will reside in the kingdom of God. Thank goodness our eternal existence isn't one where we're going to be living endlessly with this continued presence of sin and suffering. I mean, who would really want to live like that? No, we look forward to a new kingdom, one where we are with a holy and good God forever, one where he has put all of his enemies under his feet. But secondly, it matters because Paul was trying to keep the Corinthians out of the ditches of faith. You see, he wanted the Corinthians to have a balanced view of the the end, not seeking to, to pull the kingdom of God down, nor trying to barge in and propel ourselves into it. Rather, he exhorts us to persevere in faith, knowing that our labors are not in vain. He wants to give them and us a clear, crisp vision of their future hope that they might live their present lives faithfully. And in that, we too can learn so much from what he's written. My aim this morning is is really quite simple. I want to show you how you can persevere in faith anticipating the resurrection that is to come and participating in its victory. My outline this morning is two points, two practical points. Number one, anticipate the resurrection in faith. Anticipate the resurrection in faith. That's from verses 50 through to 55. And the second point is this, participate in the victory by faith. Participate in the victory by faith, verses 56 and 57. You ready? We're going to dive in. Point number one, anticipate the resurrection in faith. In verses 50 through 55, Paul gives us a taste of what is to come. He describes the mystery of the resurrection and the transformation of our mortal bodies into imperishable ones. 
But before Paul shares his good news of the resurrection, he first addresses what cannot happen. What cannot happen? In verse 50, he says this. He says, I tell you, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. This means that our current physical bodies, which are weak and perishable, finite, corruptible, they're subject to decay and death. As you get older, <laughs> this becomes more apparent. This body cannot, cannot enter the eternal, imperishable kingdom of God. Going back briefly to the analogy of the cicadas, you can imagine how ill-prepared a nymph would be if it were to prematurely go above ground. In an even greater way, earthly bodies are utterly incompatible to dwell with a holy and infinite God. It simply cannot happen. Dead things cannot enter into a living kingdom. Now, this might seem like bad news, but in fact, it is an, a necessary step for the transformation that's to come. And so we move on to verses 51 and 52, where Paul declares what will happen. He says, behold, behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed, transformed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. I want you to notice the language here. There's no hedging or uncertainty. Rather, God has chosen to reveal through the hands of Paul what was previously hidden. He has chosen to reveal what will happen. You see, there will come a time when Christ returns that those who are in Christ, those who have died in Christ, and those who are still alive will experience a transformation, a metamorphosis of sorts, a resurrection that will make us fit for the eternal kingdom of God. Make us fit to live in God's presence. This won't be a gradual process, but a sudden and a certain event that will happen according to God's plan and purpose. And it will happen quickly. So quickly, in fact, that it will be like the twinkling of an eye. In fact, the Greek term that is used here means that there is an atomic, an indivisible moment in time. And at that moment, the last trumpet will sound and the dead will rise and the living will be changed. We are meant to think perhaps even of Old Testament imagery where the trumpet was used to assemble the the people for a convocation of war. Or we might think of Jesus in Matthew twenty four thirty one when he says, and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds. Or we might think of Joshua at Jericho when the trumpet blasts signals simultaneously the judgment of a city and the ushering in of a new era. This moment will happen. Suddenly and certainly it will happen. And it will happen, why? Because it's been revealed to us. Paul goes on to explain the, the nature of this transformation. He says this, for the perishable body must put on the imperishable. This mortal body must put on immortality. Verse 53. 
What he means is that our bodies, which are now subject to decay and death, they must be changed to be incorruptible. They must be changed to be immortal. Just like Christ's resurrected body. It's not an optional thing. It's not a negotiable thing. It's a necessary condition for us to enter in to God's kingdom. And so we've seen what, what, what cannot happen. We've seen what will happen. And we've also seen what must happen. Let's look next at what happens when it happens. Verses 54 through 55. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on the immortality, then, then shall come to pass the saying that's written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? For the astute reader, you might recognize that Paul uh, references several Old Testament prophecies primarily from Isaiah 25.8 and Hosea 13.14. And these prophecies speak of a future time. Remember, these prophecies were, were written long before Jesus. Right? They, they speak of a future time when God will defeat death and wipe away tears from all faces. But this careful, astute reader might also realize that Paul's quotation is not quite exact. In fact, uh, it was very customary for uh, New Testament writers, like Paul, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, uh, to actually interpret Old Testament texts while they quote them rather loosely. And so, more specifically, Paul here changes and combines these two texts into a kind of taunt. The irony is palpable. You can almost taste the irony here as he says, Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? And the irony is this. Doesn't it, doesn't it resonate and contrast with the taunt, the taunts that the chief priests and scribes said at the cross when Jesus was there? Remember this taunt? He saved others. He cannot save himself. Mark fifteen thirty one. The chief priests and scribes were ultimately proven wrong. While they believed that Jesus' death on the cross was a sign of his defeat and weakness and intended to belittle him, it was actually through his death and resurrection that he achieved victory over sin and death. Their taunts served only to highlight their own short-sightedness, their own lack of faith. And meanwhile, Paul's taunt here celebrates the triumph of Christ and the hope that believers have in his resurrection. And so masterfully, Paul crafts this short, taunting poem, quoting the Old Testament, and he gives his readers both a vision for the future, where death is no more, and at the same time, he gives them a sure hope for the, the, the present where death has lost its sting because Jesus absorbed that sting on the cross. You see, the good news of Jesus Christ is both present and future. It's 
future in that one day we will not need to live with the sting, the stink and the stain of sin anymore. It gives us a glimpse into this glorious future that awaits us. Something we can only barely see and accept by faith. Where we will be resurrected. Death will no longer have power over us. And yet the good news of Jesus Christ is also present in that it offers us hope now to persevere in faith despite what seems to be so dreadfully futile. We know that death does not have the final word. But friends, here's often the problem. While we may intellectually understand this, Paul's words about victory over death, we we might intellectually understand these words. Many of us still feel the sting of death in our own lives. We see it every day, and it stares at us, taunting us to unbelief. There seems to be this, well, incongruence between what we know to be true and our lived experience, our felt experience. Maybe you're someone this morning Uh, Or maybe someone that you love that's just experiencing physical or emotional pain. And that pain just seems so overwhelming. It's difficult to imagine bodies that are imperishable when every day you wake up with this nausea or a headache. It's difficult to have hope when you have a pervasive sadness or spiraling depression that overtakes your every thought. It's difficult to have hope when you receive that dreadful news that you might have a terminal illness. Or maybe you're like me and you're often gripped by fear and anxiety. Maybe for you, this quote from uh, Ernest Becker's book, The Denial of Death, resonates. The irony of man's condition is is that the deepest need is to be free of the anxiety of death and annihilation, but it is life itself which awakens it. And so we must shrink from being fully alive. Becker's secular hypothesis is that our anxieties ultimately stem from this terrifying fear of death. While we want to believe that the resurrected life will be glorious, we fail to live fully into this life because we've bought into this lie so prevalent so paralyzed by fear. And we mistakenly believe that eternal life is just this dreadful continuation of this fearful life. Who wants that? Perhaps it isn't your own fears or suffering this morning, but rather somebody else's. It can be incredibly painful to watch someone you love go through a difficult and painful experience. Perhaps you're walking alongside a friend this morning who's facing a terminal illness. Maybe it's your spouse. And you've, or you've witnessed the, the countless disappointments as they've gone for test after test, and it's always bad news. Or maybe you've witnessed the effects of poverty and, 
injustice in our community? How do you offer, how do we offer as Christians hope in the midst of what seems to be insurmountable pain and injustice? Or maybe this morning you're just feeling the, the, the limits of your, your own limitations. Life is so overwhelming at the moment that you feel like you're drowning. Can the reality of what Paul articulates about our future hope really comfort us? Or maybe this morning you're just feeling the sting of death, uh, the, the sting of sin, rather, because of choices you've made that have hurt others. Maybe you've just gone against God's will. And that reality that the wages of sin is death in Romans 6.23 is weighs heavily on you. It's difficult to imagine how death has lost its sting when the itch of sin is so pervasive. Now, in all of these, in all of these scenarios, I want to first acknowledge how painful it is. I don't want to minimize the pain because the pain is very real. We live in a fallen world. We live in a fallen, perishable world with perishable bodies. Suffering and sin are very real. Some of you are nurses and doctors and you see this every day. And it can feel dreadful. We live on this side of eternity where that pain is still deeply felt. The sting still feels very real. People really do die. And I think that sometimes we can be insensitive when we have this over-realized eschatology, when we just tritely say that the sting of death is no more to the parent who's just lost their child, or that if you just believe hard enough, if you just have enough faith, then your terminally ill relative will be healed. Or that it is imp uh, indeed possible to go on for many days without sinning. <laughs> you know, I once walked alongside this brother who said that he rarely sins, and I've often wondered whether he just simply missed Jesus' point about wholehearted obedience. And then there's the flip side. On the flip side, we can also be doomsayers, right? where we have this underrealized eschatology, when we're so inwardly focused that we lose sight of the hope that Paul is revealing to us. A and we strive in vain to achieve our own resurrection. And Paul says, no. Hope is neither found in our own striving and in our own attempts to barge into the kingdom with our perishable bodies. Rather, Paul offers us hope by reminding us of a different perspective. He reminds us of the long view that God is in control, that he is taking his people into the kingdom of God. He offers us a vision of the future and the opportunity to anticipate it, to taste it in faith. That one day we will all be changed. But Paul's vision here is not just of the future. It also encompasses the present and the past. The future is possible because of the victory that's already been won in the past. 
You see, Paul not only tells us what cannot happen and what will happen and what must happen and what happens when it happens, he tells us also what has happened and what is already happening. And so, in addition to anticipating the future in faith, we can actively participate in it. We can actively actively participate in this victory by faith. And that's our second point. Participate in the victory by faith. In verses 56 and 57, Paul writes this, The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. I alluded to it earlier, but there's this uh, cultural anthropologist. His name is Ernest Becker. He used to be a professor of anthropology, actually, at the Simon Fraser University. And he once wrote a Pulitzer Prize-winning book called The Denial of Death. It's not a Christian book, so... Uh, don't read it as gospel. And his main thesis in this book is this, quote, the idea of death, the fear of it, haunts the human animal like nothing else. It is the mainspring of human activity, activity designed largely to avoid the fatality of death, to overcome it by denying it in some way that is that it is the final destiny of man. In Becker's view, there is really no way to overcome this, what he calls this real dilemma of existence. Take this quote. He says this, A person spends years coming into his own, developing his or her talent, his unique gifts, perfecting his discriminations about the world, broadening and sharpening his appetite, learning to bear the disappointments of life, becoming mature, seasoned, Finally, a unique creature. Then the real tragedy. He's only good for dying. (laughs) This painful paradox is not lost on the person himself. He has to go the way of the grasshopper, even though it takes longer. Becker's right about one thing, or two things actually. Death is haunting. It is inevitable. And left to our own vain devices, our own efforts, yes, our lives, our, our lives are meaningless. But he gets one crucial part of that equation wrong. He mistakes the consequence of the problem for the problem. He mistakes the consequence of the problem for the problem. You see, the problem isn't death, it's sin. Not just our personal sin, but uh, all your sin and Adam's sin. That's what the verse says. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. This verse means that the cause of death is sin, and that sin gains its power over us from the law. In other words, the law reveals our sinfulness. It shows us that we fall short of God's perfect standards, The consequence of sin is death. But through Jesus Christ, through Jesus Christ's resurrection, believers believers are afforded the opportunity to be free from power, from the power of sin and death. The consequence of sin is death. But through Christ's resurrection, those who put their trust and their faith in Jesus can be freed 
from the power of sin and death. What's happened is that Jesus has taken on the ultimate consequence of sin upon himself. Yes, death is terrifying, but only because sin is terrifying. You see, to sin is to oppose the holy and almighty God. Remember, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. But Jesus, in taking on our sin, removed the sting from death. Death no longer has the final say. And through his death, he atoned for our sin. He paid for our sin. And through his resurrection, he achieved victory over death. And for any who would believe that, that Jesus died for their sins in accordance with the scriptures and believe that God raised Jesus on the third day, they will be saved. They will be clothed with Christ. And this, my friends, is incredibly good news. It's incredibly good news, not just because God has opened this way, but because through the gospel, we are invited to participate in this victory by faith, believing in what has already happened. Believers are united with Christ, not just in his death and, and in his resurrection, but in the victorious life. Consider Romans eight thirty-five through 39 says this, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, Paul says, in all these things we are more than conquerors. More than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. <laughs> and so, brothers and sisters, in light of this truth, let's consider how we might live. For that sufferer, we participate in the victory by faith. And we press on knowing that we can take all of our sufferings to him and lament because the surpassing love of God, knowing that he will comfort us, he will remind us of where he's taking us. He's taking us to this glorious new creation where there will be no more pain or suffering where we will have imperishable bodies and where we will be with Jesus forever. For the sinner, we participate by faith, knowing that we can repent. There is hope for our sin. We can repent even if it's the umpteenth time, it seems, that you are repenting, knowing that God's mercy triumphs over sin. And we can likewise forgive those who have sinned against us because we participate in this victory where we have been forgiven so much. For those who are walking alongside others, for the encourager, we participate in faith knowing that we are not without hope to offer. 
we can point people to Jesus Christ. Even let them borrow our hope for a while as they gain clarity on this beautiful mystery that's been revealed to us. But Paul's encouragement is not merely to the individual Christian. He addresses this to brothers and sisters in Christ. He addresses this to you all, to the church. And in this, there is a sense in which the kingdom of God has already started to break in. It means that one of the ways that we participate in this victory is what we'll be doing in just a few minutes. By gathering together as a church, by praising God and thanking God for what he's done, by confessing our sin one to another, by reminding ourselves of the truth of the gospel, by proclaiming the gospel in evangelism to a waiting world who does not know him, by loving one another as God has loved us, we help each other along this journey that God is taking us on as we wait in eager anticipation for his coming and our bodily transformation. Paul ends this chapter with an incredible exhortation, one which I'll just touch on briefly, and Brant will expound on it next week. It's sermon length. <laughs> in verse 58, he says this, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. You see, the Bible bids us to walk wisely in the way of the Lord. You might remember Ephesians 5, 15 through 17, which, which says this, Look carefully then at how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And so, my friends, as I conclude this, as we anticipate the return of our Lord Jesus Christ, and along with it, the, the resurrection of our bodies and this full realization of the new kingdom. And as we consider how we might participate in the present, in this victory that's already been won for us, one final and key question emerges. It's this. How will you live your life today? How will you live your life? How will you live your life? Will you live it? Will you live your life in vain? Encumbered by your own efforts to deny death? Or will you, will you live your life in faith, knowing that your moment-by-moment -moment obedience and service to the Lord is not in vain? The full realization of the kingdom is coming. Jesus is returning. It will happen. It will happen because he reveals that it will happen. The question is, do you believe it? 
Do you anticipate it? And will you participate in it with grateful hearts by faith? Let's pray. Father, we are moved by your word this morning. We are moved by this mystery that you have revealed to us that one day we will have glorious and imperishable bodies. It's often hard to see when we are in the midst of sin and suffering, when we still are in these perishable, sin-stained bodies, when we are still in these suffering, perishable bodies, it's very difficult to see. But Father, we pray this morning that you would give us the eyes of faith, that you would give us a clear vision of what you reveal to us in your word, and that you would increase our faith, that you would help our unbelief, that as we live each day, each moment, that we would make the best use of our time by walking in the obedience of faith. That we would take each suffering and lament it to you and remember your trustworthiness. That we would take each sin and we would repent of it, knowing that your grace is sufficient. And that we would offer hope as we walk alongside one another on this journey, on this pilgrimage. Thank you that you do not leave us without hope. Thank you for the great love that you give us in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.